Chapters 53 and 54 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 53. The foregoing conversation, and others like it, made a deep impression upon my hero. If next day he had taken a walk with Mr. Hawk, and heard what he had to say on the other side, he would have been just as much struck, and as ready to fling off what Pryor had told him, as he was now to throw aside all he had ever heard from any one except Pryor. But there was no Mr. Hawk at hand. So Pryor had everything his own way. Embryo minds, like embryo bodies, pass through a number of strange metamorphoses before they adopt their final shape. It is no more to be wondered at that one who is going to turn out a Roman Catholic should have passed through stages of being first a Methodist and then a free thinker, than that a man should at some former time have been a mere cell, and later on an invertebrate animal. Ernest, however, could not be expected to know this. Embryos never do. Embryos think, with each stage of their development, that they have now reached the only condition which really suits them. This, they say, must certainly be their last, inasmuch as its close will be so great a shock that nothing could survive it. Every change is a shock. Every shock is a pro-tanto death. What we call death is only a shock great enough to destroy our power to recognize a past and a present as resembling one another. It is the making us consider the points of difference between our present and our past greater than the points of resemblance, so that we can no longer call the former of these two in any proper sense a continuation of the second, but find it less trouble to think of it as something that we choose to call new. But to let this pass, it was clear that spiritual pathology, I confess that I do not know myself what spiritual pathology means, but Pryor and Ernest, doubtless did, was the great desideratum of the age. It seemed to Ernest that he had made this discovery himself, and had been familiar with it all his life, that he had never known, in fact, of anything else. He wrote long letters to his college friends expounding his views as though he had been one of the apostolic fathers. As for the Old Testament writers, he had no patience with them. Do oblige me, I find him writing to one friend, by reading the prophet Zechariah and giving me your candid opinion upon him. He is poor stuff, full of Yankee bounce. It is sickening to live in an age when such balderdash can be gravely admired, whether as poetry or prophecy. This was because Pryor had set him against Zachariah. I do not know what Zachariah had done. I should think myself that Zachariah was a very good prophet. Perhaps it was because he was a Bible writer, and not a very prominent one that Pryor selected him as one through whom to disparage the Bible in comparison with the Church. To his friend Dawson I find him saying, a little later on, 
Pryor and I continue our walks, working out each other's thoughts. At first he used to do all the thinking, but I think I am pretty well abreast of him now, and rather chuckle at seeing that he is already beginning to modify some of the views he held most strongly when I first knew him. Then I think he was on the high road to Rome. Now, however, he seems to be a good deal struck with a suggestion of mine in which you too perhaps may be interested. You see, we must infuse new life into the church somehow. We are not holding our own against either Rome or infidelity. I may say in passing that I do not believe Ernest had as yet ever seen an infidel, not to speak to. I proposed, therefore, a few days back to Pryor, and he fell in eagerly with the proposal as soon as he saw that I had the means of carrying it out, that we should set on a foot of spiritual movement somewhat analogous to the Young England movement of twenty years ago the aim of which shall be at once to outbid Rome on the one hand, and skepticism on the other. For this purpose I see nothing better than the formation of an institution or college for placing the nature and treatment of sin on a more scientific basis than it rests at present. We want, to borrow a useful term of priors, a college of spiritual pathology where young men— I suppose Ernest thought he was no longer young by this time, may study the nature and treatment of the sins of the soul as medical students study those of the bodies of their patients. Such a college, as you will probably admit, will approach both Rome on the one hand and science on the other. Rome, as giving the priesthood more skill, and therefore as paving the way for their obtaining greater power, and science by recognizing that even free thought has a certain kind of value in spiritual enquiries. To this purpose, Pryor and I have resolved to devote ourselves henceforth heart and soul. Of course, my ideas are still unshaped, and all will depend upon the men by whom the college is first worked. I am not yet a priest, but Pryor is, and if I were to start the college, Pryor might take charge of it for a time, and I work under him nominally as his subordinate. Pryor himself suggested this. Is it not generous of him? The worst of it is that we have not enough money. I have, it is true, five thousand pounds, but we want at least ten thousand pounds, so Pryor says, before we can start. When we are fairly under way, I might live at the college and draw a salary from the foundation, so that is all one, or nearly so, whether I invest my money in this way or in buying a living. Besides, I want very little. It is certain that I shall never marry. No clergyman should think of this, and an unmarried man can live on next to nothing. Still, I do not see my way to as much money as I want and Pryor suggests that, as we can hardly earn more now, we must get it by a judicious series of investments. Pryor knows several people who make quite a handsome income out of very little, or indeed, I may say, nothing at all, by buying things at a place they call the Stock Exchange. I don't know much about it yet, but Pryor says I should soon learn. He thinks, indeed, 
that I have shown rather a talent in this direction, and under proper auspices should make a very good man of business. Others, of course, and not I, must decide this, but a man can do anything if he gives his mind to it, and though I should not care about having more money for my own sake, I care about it very much when I think of the good I could do with it by saving souls from such horrible torture hereafter. Why, if the thing succeeds, and I really cannot see what is to hinder it, it is hardly possible to exaggerate its importance, nor the proportions which it may ultimately assume, etc., etc. Again I asked Ernest whether he minded my printing this. He winced, but said, No, not if it helps you to tell your story, but don't you think it's too long? I said it would let the reader see for himself how things were going in half the time that it would take me to explain them to him. Very well, then, keep it by all means. I continue turning over my file of Ernest's letters and find as follows. Thanks for your last, in answer to which I send you a rough copy of a letter I sent to the Times a day or two back. They did not insert it, but it embodies pretty fully my ideas on the parochial visitation question, and Pryor fully approves of the letter. Think it carefully over and send it back to me when read, for it is so exactly my present creed that I cannot afford to lose it. I should very much like to have a viva voce discussion on these matters. I can only see for certain that we have suffered a dreadful loss in being no longer able to excommunicate. We should excommunicate rich and poor alike, and pretty freely, too. If this power were restored to us, we could, I think, soon put a stop to by far the greater part of the sin and misery with which we are surrounded. These letters were written only a few weeks after Ernest had been ordained, but they are nothing to others that he wrote a little later on. In his eagerness to regenerate the Church of England, and through this the universe, by the means which Pryor had suggested to him, it occurred to him to try to familiarize himself with the habits and thoughts of the poor by going and living among them. I think he got this notion from Kingsley's Alton Locke, which, high churchman though he for this nonce was, he had devoured as he had devoured Stanley's Life of Arnold, Dickens' novels, and whatever other literary garbage of the day was most likely to do him harm. At any rate, he actually put his scheme into practice, and took lodgings in Ashpit Place, a small street in the neighborhood of Drury Lane Theatre, in a house of which the landlady was the widow of a cabman. This lady occupied the whole ground floor. In the front kitchen there was a tinker. The back kitchen was let to a bellows-mender. On the first floor came Ernest with his two rooms, which he furnished comfortably, for one must draw the line somewhere. The two upper floors were parceled out among four different sets of lodgers. There was a tailor named Holt, a drunken fellow who used to beat his wife at night till her screams woke the house. Above him there was another tailor with a wife but no children. These people were Wesleyans, given to drink but not noisy. The two back rooms were held by single ladies, 
who it seemed to Ernest must be respectably connected, for well-dressed gentlemanly-looking young men used to go up and down the stairs past Ernest's rooms, to call at any rate on Miss Snow. Ernest had heard her door slam after they had passed. He thought, too, that some of them went to see Miss Maitland's. Mrs. Jupp, the landlady, told Ernest that these were brothers and cousins of Miss Snow's, and that she was herself looking out for a situation as a governess, but at present had an engagement as an actress at the Drury Lane Theatre. Ernest asked whether Miss Maitland, in the top back, was also looking out for a situation, and was told she was wanting an engagement as a milliner. He believed whatever Mrs. Jupp told him. Chapter 54 This move on Ernest's part was variously commented upon by his friends, the general opinion being that it was just like Pontifex, who was sure to do something unusual wherever he went, but that on the whole the idea was commendable. Christina could not restrain herself when on sounding her clerical neighbors she found them inclined to applaud her son for conduct which they idealized into something much more self-denying than it really was. She did not quite like his living in such an unaristocratic neighborhood, but what he was doing would probably get into the newspapers, and then great people would take notice of him. Besides, it would be very cheap. Down among these poor people he could live for next to nothing, and might put by a great deal of his income. As for temptations, there could be few or none in such a place as that. This argument about cheapness was the one which she most successfully met Theobald, who grumbled more suo that he had no sympathy with his son's extravagance and conceit. When Christina pointed out to him that it would be cheap, he replied that there was something in that. On Ernest himself the effect was to confirm the good opinion of himself which had been growing upon him ever since he had begun to read for orders, and to make him flatter himself that he was among the few who were ready to give up all for Christ. Ere long he began to conceive of himself as a man with a mission and a great future. His lightest and most hastily formed opinions began to be of momentous importance to him, and he inflicted them, as I have already shown, on his old friends, week by week becoming more and more entete with himself and his own crotchets. I should like well enough to draw a veil over this part of my hero's career, but cannot do so without marring my story. In the spring of 1859 I find him writing. I cannot call the visible church Christian till its fruits are Christian, that is, until the fruits of the members of the Church of England are in conformity, or something like conformity, with her teaching. I cordially agree with the teaching of the Church of England in most respects, but she says one thing and does another, and until excommunication— yes, and wholesale excommunication, be resorted to, I cannot call her a Christian institution. I should begin with our rector, and if I found it necessary to follow him up by excommunicating the bishop, I should not flinch even from this. The present London rectors are hopeless people to deal with. 
My own is one of the best of them, but the moment Pryor and I show signs of wanting to attack an evil in a way not recognized by routine, or of remedying anything about which no outcry has been made, we are met with, I cannot think what you mean by all of this disturbance. Nobody else among the clergy sees these things, and I have no wish to be the first to begin turning things topsy-turvy. And then people call him a sensible man. I have no patience with them. However, we know what we want, and, as I wrote to Dawson the other day, I have a scheme on foot which will, I think, fairly meet the requirements of the case. But we want more money, and my first move towards getting this has not turned out quite so satisfactorily as Pryor and I had hoped. We shall, however, I doubt not, retrieve it shortly. When Ernest came to London he intended to do a good deal of house-to-house -house visiting, but Pryor had talked him out of this even before he settled down in his new and strangely chosen apartments. The line he now took was that if people wanted Christ, they must prove their want by taking some little trouble, and the trouble required of them was that they should come and seek him, Ernest, out. There he was in the midst of them ready to teach. If people did not choose to come to him, it was no fault of his. My great business here, he writes again to Dawson, is to observe. I am not doing much in parish work beyond my share of the daily services. I have a man's Bible class and a boy's Bible class, and a good many young men and boys to whom I give instruction one way or another. Then there are Sunday school children with whom I fill my room on a Sunday evening as full as it will hold, and let them sing hymns and chants. They like this. I do a great deal of reading, chiefly of books which Pryor and I think most likely to help. We find nothing comparable to the Jesuits. Pryor is a thorough gentleman, and an admirable man of business, no less observant of the things of this world, in fact, than of the things above. By a brilliant coup he has retrieved, or nearly so, a rather serious loss which threatened to delay indefinitely the execution of our great scheme. He and I daily gather fresh principles. I believe great things are before me, and I am strong in the hope of being able, by and by, to effect much. As for you, I bid you Godspeed. Be bold but logical, speculative but cautious, daringly courageous but properly circumspect withal, etc., etc. I think this may do for the present. End of chapter 54 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman